This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Good morning, Dan and Amy, remembering Bush 41. One of the more uh, memorable moments was after he lost the presidential election in 1992, the Christmas party at the White House, his final one. And uh, he invites Dana Carvey. That's so awesome. (laughs) Of course. He was on C-SPAN, the whole thing, 20 minutes long. Made his mark in part on parroting, impersonating Bush, and in the 1992 cycle, Bush and Perot. And uh, Dana Carvey uh, took to the dais to explain how you do a George Herbert Walker Bush impersonation. The way to do the president is to start out with Mr. Rogers. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. <laughs> then you add a little John Wayne. Here we go. Let's go over the ridge. You put them together. You got George Herbert Walker Bush. That's the thing there. Wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. <laughs> And, and he uh, had all the hand gestures down. Oh, He's course. like, there, there. And, you know, the hitchhiker one. A thousand points to lie. A thousand light. points, yep. yeah. Uh, but I mean, I just... In bar, Olar, bar. <laughs> I mean... In this day and age, you would never have President Trump invite Alec Baldwin to the White House for anything, let alone a Christmas party, to make no, fun of him. No, That and, would not be tolerated. And, and uh, H.W. sort of um, made that point and really... Uh, provided uh, some foreshadowing of where this was going to go different than what it was during his time. Dan has given me a lot of laughs. Uh, He said to me on the phone, you sure you really want me to come there? And I said, yeah. And uh, he said, I hope I've never crossed the line. And I knew exactly what he meant. And as far as I'm concerned, he never has. And uh, the fact that we can uh, laugh at each other is a very fundamental thing. I'm not sure on November... uh, November 4th that the invitation would have gone out and Ben had the same enthusiasm, but we're shifting gears and I think he's given us a wonderful kickoff to what I hope will be a joyous, a totally friendly, very happy, somewhat nostalgic. Talking about Christmas and uh, it's a couple things President Bush said there. One, just the idea that uh, you have to be open to ridicule, you laugh at yourself, um, an appreciation for uh, Dana Carvey's comedic skills and a recognition that it wasn't vitriolic. But the second thing is just the, hey, um, the ability and the uh, freedom to laugh, to parody, to ridicule. I mean, that's part of a free society. And that's certainly increasingly uh, under assault from the cultural Marxist left. President Bush's last public act came last month when he voted. And I don't know if you saw he was you know, in his wheelchair wearing his signature socks, and he had his service dog, Sully, next to him, who, by the way, is now going to go back to Walter Reed Hospital, but he's had Sully since June, since the passing of his wife, Barbara. There's also something else I want to make sure we mention again, um, post-presidency 41. The note he left Bill Clinton uh, uh, on the day Bill Clinton entered the Oval Office, January 23rd, 1993, uh, the key line, your success now is our country's success. I'm rooting hard for you. The relationship you developed with uh, Bill Clinton. Yeah, they teamed up to help, you know, global relief efforts. Um, but how, how different it was. The lesson that 41 set for 43 um, 
and uh, not necessarily was adopted by 43 in terms of post-presidency, not so much by 42 or 44. Uh, Maureen Dowd writing the New York Times this weekend, curtains for the Clintons. I mean, brutal, brutal, um, but largely true. Uh, what is the point? She talks about going to uh, Toronto to an event with Bill and Hillary Clinton. The hockey rink is half curtained off, but even with that, organizers are scrambling at the last minute to cordon off more sections behind thick black curtains due to lack of sales for the event. <gasps> and she contrasted, of course, with Michelle Obama's you know wildly successful oh, book yeah, tour. But 19,000 people in Brooklyn. But she asked, what is the point? What are the Clintons doing? It's not inspirational. It's not for charity. They're not raising awareness about a cause. They're only raising awareness about the Clintons. Yeah, and they're lining their own pockets. It, but it can't be the money at this point, number one. It might not make it as much. But also, they've hoovered, <laughs> writes Dowd, more than $2 billion in contributions to their campaigns, foundation, and philanthropies. $2 billion? After the White House, the money-grubbing raged on, with the Clintons making more than 700 speeches in a 15-year period, blithely unconcerned with any appearance of avarice or of shady special interests and foreign countries buying influence. They stockpiled a whopping $240 million. Even leading up to the 2016 presidential run, Hillary was packing in the speeches, talking to the Institute of Scrap Recycling Industries, the American Camp Association, eBay, and, of course, the trifecta of speeches for Goldman Sachs worth Six hundred seventy-five grand, And then this quote, which applies to the Clintons particularly, but the left generally, and it comes from a liberal, Charlie Peters, the former editor of the Washington Monthly. What scares me most is Hillary's smug certainty of her own virtue as she has become greedy and how typical that is of so many chic liberals who seem unaware of their own greed. How different the post-presidency for Clintons, the Clintons have been, as compared to the post-presidencies of both Bushes. I think that's something that's uh, worth distinguishing. For more uh, insights on these topics and more, we're pleased to be joined by best-selling author Ronald Kessler, New York Times best-selling author of books on the Secret Service, the FBI, the CIA, and his most recent offering, The Trump White House Changing the Rules of the Game. Ronald Kessler, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. What about uh, your reflections on H.W. Uh, Bush, both uh, his presidency and post-presidency? Well, in my book, uh, The First Family Detail, about the Secret Service, I have a whole chapter on Bush and how he treated Secret Service agents with respect and consideration, in contrast to someone like Hillary, who's still under Secret Service prote protection, who is so nasty to her agents that being assigned to her details considered a form, a form of punishment and the worst <laughs> assignment in the Secret Service. Uh, I have a, a number of anecdotes, one of which is uh, when Bush was vice president, uh, the Secret Service agents would come out at 3 in the morning looking for the cookies that the stewards would make. So one of the agents, uh, Albrecht, was looking for the cookies, and he heard this voice behind them, uh, where are the cookies well, he turned around, it was, it was George H.W. Bush, and so the two of them went looking for the cookies, uh, finally found them, ate them together with milk, and uh, just a touch, <clears throat> touching uh, example of how Bush uh, react, uh, interacted with, with uh, other people. Uh, and, um, did any of your, of course, oh, did go, any of your agents uh, describe 
the relationship and the love between H.W. Bush and his wife, Barbara? Yeah, I was just going to say uh, that they had a, a very, very close, loving relationship. Uh, Barbara also was very uh, considerate, considerate of her agents. One time they were kind of dunk poured. It was freezing out. One of the agents had not brought a hat, and uh, Barbara insisted that uh, they go back to the house and, and get a, uh, one of Bush's hats. And uh, the agent said, no, no, that, that's not necessary. And, and Bush said, well, you better do what Barbara says. <laughs> uh, so uh, also a big contrast with Al Gore, who was Bush's predecessor as vice president. Uh, Gore also is one of these people like Hillary who claimed to be a champion of little people, but yet he couldn't bear to even say Merry Christmas to them uh, when they were out there uh, guarding his his property in uh, in uh, Tennessee. Uh, tremendous hypocrisy. And and speaking of hypocrisy, I have a recent uh, Washington Times op-ed on the uh, dishonest media, uh, the fact that uh, Trump when he said that uh, California needs to do better forest management, was denounced in the media as 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 uh, just just a shameful person, uh, and uh, uh, just could not be uh, more heartless. Um, well, it turned out subsequently <clears throat> that Governor Jerry Brown, a Democrat, as you know, said the same thing that they need better forest management. In fact, he had already been moving in that direction. Uh, but of course, the media never <clears throat> apologized or corrected the, re- the record on on that issue. Well, going back to H.W. Uh, Bush, uh, Brett Baer writing an op-ed, Dana Perino an op-ed, uh, Baer and her both basically both get to the same point, which I think you're getting to is that uh, politics aside, uh, Bush's legacy is his humanity, his decency. Uh, he treated people well, and even though he was a person who came from privilege. Uh, it didn't radiate from him the way it does from some of the champagne socialists you're talking about. Yeah, and and that uh, example uh, that the New York Times ran uh, in in his obit of him uh, seeming to be amazed at a grocery scanner uh, was was completely yes. uh, a fabrication. Yeah, he was, right. He was simply looking at uh, how how this latest version can uh, figure out uh, labels, even if they're torn up, uh, even if they're uh, disheveled. So totally uh, a, a fiction. You know, during Watergate, I sat next to Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. Uh, later, I, I joined uh, Woodward's investigative team at his in- invitation. And I know the pressure we were all under, uh, under the executive editor, Ben Bradley, to be fair and accurate, and we any any of us would have been fired over the stories that that are run now. Uh, for example, the New York Times ran a story. Uh, the lead was uh, that uh, Rowan Brewer, a model, had barely met Donald Trump in Mar-a-Lago when he asked if she wanted to asked if she wanted to change out of her clothes. Well, wow! It turned out that. She had been invited at the last minute to a pool party at Mar-a-Lago. She didn't have time to go back and get a bathing suit. He asked her if he, if she wanted one, and uh, he gave her one. She went in the bathroom, changed, came out. And guess what? Uh, the story portrayed this as some demeaning encounter, but in fact, she started dating him and, and went out with him for several months. Where did that appear in the story? In the 16th paragraph. That's just such a stunning example of the dishonesty of the media. Yeah, I listened to Sam Donaldson 
over the weekend, he was on CNN and saying, the media now is different than the media back then. Back then, they were held to different standards, and President H.W. Bush knew that. Yeah. You know, for example, when uh, April Ryan, uh, CNN uh, contributor and and, uh, radio network uh, reporter, said at a White House briefing that uh, Sarah Sanders must have uh, made up the story that she baked a uh, pecan pie. She she insinuated publicly that this was this was a lie based on nothing, no evidence whatsoever. That person would have been fired immediately uh, back then. And now uh, she goes on on CNN all the time uh, pontificating about Trump. And it's also uh, there was a, a big story over the weekend that NPR got wrong, and I'll. Uh give them the benefit of the doubt, even though they don't deserve it. But this is with respect to uh, the Cohen plea last week and the uh, the report that NPR published. Trump Jr., Donald Trump Jr.'s 2017 testimony conflicts with Cohen's account of Russian talks, which would be big news, except it's not true. And uh, as um, uh, somebody pointed out on Twitter, I think from Daily Caller, once you see the transcript, which uh, NPR had, it's really, really hard to see how this happened, this uh, mistake they made the entire premise of the story was false and so npr issues this correction mischaracterizes admitting they mischaracterized an answer trump jr gave to the senate investigators but i mean the premise of the story is is wrong and so the whole thing is wrong and this was npr not cnn you know in this op-ed i quote uh a former national public radio ceo ken stern as saying that the liberal media bias is pervasive and all of it runs counter to President Trump. When you're a liberal and everyone else around you is, is as well, it is easy to fall into groupthink on what stories are important, what sources are legitimate, and what the narrative of the day will be. And, and you know, somehow that you know, is an attempt to explain what you're talking about, but, but I don't think any of us can explain it except that it's just dishonesty. That, uh, you know, to me, these people are scam artists posing as journalists. Um, I, I would, you know, it's, it's akin to robbing a bank. Uh, it's not, it's not criminal, but it's it's just as, as dishonest. Um, and it's and you see it every single day uh, in the media. And uh, another um, example uh, recently was um, that Trump was uh, denounced again as being heartless when he said that uh, when when he. Uh, uh, used uh, tear gas under his administration against the uh, caravan in, in uh, trying to cross into uh, the southern border. Right. Well, it turned out that uh, Obama, the Obama administration, had used tear gas 79 times, not once as under Trump, but 79 times. There was never an outcry under under uh, Obama, and, and there were no stories pointing that out when when uh, right. Trump was denounced well, as being heartless. Everything about the D.C. press corps coverage of the caravan, including the composition of it, uh, yes, Saturday with a uh, convicted murderer arrested uh, as who was trying to sneak back into this country as part of the caravan. So, I mean, uh, you know, um, it, it's it's gone from Michael Wolff's, if it sounds true, it probably is, to if you wish it were true, then it is, seems to That's be the it. standard for the D.C. press corps. You got it. You know, during the uh, campaign, uh, the press portrayed Trump as as a failure, as as uh, as broke. Uh, then after he won, uh, all of a sudden he was portrayed as being so wealthy and and uh, 
that his, his tentacles were all over the world. No matter what he did, it was some kind of conflict of interest. Uh, the uh, st- stories were run claiming that uh, he, Trump was simply uh, using money from his father uh, after his father died. Well, it turned out that uh, in 1999, when his father died, Trump was already worth $1.9 billion, according to Forbes. That's just a fact. But, of course, they ignored that. Yeah, uh, it's we could uh, we could share these stories all morning long. He is uh, Ronald Kessler, New York Times bestselling author, uh, books on the Secret Service, the FBI, CIA, and the new one, the Trump White House changing the rules of the game. Ronald Kessler, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line.